Welcome to the Sports Science Dudes. I'm your host, Dr. Jose Antonio, with my co-host, Dr. Tony Ricci. If you're a first-time listener, hit the subscribe button and like the show. We are on YouTube, Rumble, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Our special guest today is Dr. Bill Campbell. He is a professor of exercise science and the director of the Performance and Physique Enhancement Laboratory at University of South Florida. He got his master's and, and PhD degrees at Baylor. Um, were you working under Darren Willoughby, Bill? So yeah, so Rick Kreider and Darren Willoughby. Oh, Darren, who was there? Yeah, right. Darren was my uh, dissertation chairperson. Ah, okay, very cool. Well, hey, uh, talk about two powerhouses in the field, Darren and uh, Rick. Um, and while you were there, you served as the coordinator of the Exercise and Biochemical Nutrition Laboratory. Uh, I didn't realize this. Wow, you've been at USF since 2007. Holy yep. crap. Wow. First job, first job out of uh, out of the doctoral program. It, it's crazy how time flies. Um I mean, it's it, it almost seems like yesterday you were there, but it's like, you know, it's, <laughs> it's well over a decade. That's crazy. Um and as a researcher and author, uh, Dr. Bill Campbell has published uh, more than 150 papers and abstracts in academic journals related to sports nutrition and physique enhancement. Uh, his research is focused on improving uh, exercise performance and enhancing physique through, through the synergism of resistance exercise, nutrition, and dietary supplements. Uh, Dr. Campbell is a fellow of the ISSN, where he also served as past president. So okay. let's welcome Dr. Bill Campbell to the Sports Science Dude. Thank you, Bill, for spending the afternoon with us. We appreciate that. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. Now, you're known um, certainly within the exercise and sports science world for doing physique stuff. And we just had an earlier conversation offline about you know bodybuilding going back to the 1960s and 70s with the Dave Drapers and the uh, uh, well, Tony's favorite, Tom Platts with you know quads like the size of you know four of Tony's heads. <laughs> Um, but what you do isn't necessarily bodybuilding, but it's anyone who wants to change their physique. So when you entered USF, they tell all of us, when you get to academia, you got to have some sort of research agenda. What made you focus your efforts into that category versus the myriad of other categories in the field? Yes, it was actually a, a little different. So I, I, I think I have two passions, sports nutrition and physique enhancement. So when mm -hmm. I first got to USF, it was a little bit more sports nutrition focused because there was not a lot, but more funding available. So all of almost all of my funding that I get is private sector funding coming from sports nutrition companies. And I continue to do that even to, to today. And the second passion is exactly what you said, uh, physique enhancement. But I didn't start off with that because I knew I needed to generate a track record of funding. And I, I got into that pipeline, you know, and obviously my involvement with ISSN had what is a huge aspect of that. Uh, but I remember, like, even as a grad student, like I, I said, I want to study body composition um, and performance. I, I like both. So my lab name, I think you mentioned it. My my the, the the lab that I direct is the Performance and Physique Enhancement Laboratory. So it's for the way that I describe it. My research really serves two types of people: the people who uh, don't necessarily want to step on stage as a competitive bodybuilder, but want to look like they could step on stage maybe in a few weeks. 
and for people who want to perform at a high level. So being strong, being agile, fit, essentially. So that's, um, and, and then in all seriousness, basically when I design studies, it's for me and my wife. Like I want to, you know, I want to do this. Oh, let's study this. This is, this, this answers that question. Now I'm at the point where my students are designing our studies in our lab, except for the funded ones. So hopefully that answered your question. What, why I do what I do and kind of the, the route to where I'm at today. Well, you know, what's interesting is uh, the world of, I guess, physique enhancement as it applies to nutrition. I know in the sports nutrition world, a lot of what's used as sports nutrition advice actually comes from the physique world. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where a lot of people, maybe even in, in our field, as well as people outside, they confuse eating and taking supplements for performance versus eating and taking supplements to look pretty. And I, I always tell people, these are different things. You can look pretty and perform like shit, or you can perform really well and, and look like, you know, Tyson Fury, who's got a belly, but he can, you know, beat every human on the planet in boxing. So do you ever run into that where there's that discrepancy between do you want to perform better or do you want to look pretty? Because it's really different. Yes, two different populations. And yeah, I, I feel like that's that's half of what I do. Like the whole concept of nutrient timing is is very confused. Uh, people. Right. People will, you know, they'll read research and say, oh, yeah, we don't, it doesn't matter when I eat. Well, are you, are you a, an athlete who performs? Well, then I, then I'll show exactly. you. Studies. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I mean, I can show you evidence that it does matter. And if you're a physique athlete, yeah, you, you, it's, it's all about aesthetics and you really don't have to perform when they say perform, they mean have low levels of body fat. Now I'm not saying that's easy. Right. It is not what an athlete does. Yeah, having the low levels. I mean, Tony, you worked with a lot of world-class fighters and even for them, the aesthetics part, I mean, any, any weight class that's not heavyweight class, those guys and girls tend to be quite, they tend to be quite ripped just because they have to make weight. But, yeah. but that's sort of secondary to performance. You know, like for you, it's like, okay, we don't care if you're the prettiest one out there, but you need to perform. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, the body fat is only a product of how does it contribute to our total weight loss to the scale, right? So you don't want a guy out there at 13% if he could fight at nine, hypothetically, because then he's carrying an extra six, seven pounds of fat that doesn't need to be there. And hence the water pull will be greater. So we concern ourselves with it, not from the cosmetic standpoint, the side effect is cosmetically, hey, when you train through a, a multitude of different disciplines, right? You're going to look pretty good. Um, but nevertheless, that's our primary goal there is not just the reduction in body fat for the purpose of the cosmetic uh, result, but certainly for its contribution to the scale. Uh, and most guys don't get anywhere nearly as low as maybe Bill would see at the more competitive level in physique competition, even if it's not an individual who's looking to be Mr. Olympia, but is going in, um, what's that, a popular category like men's physique, right? These guys are getting into single digits. So body fat reduction for us is a product of making weight. That's really where it comes in. And you'll see guys like Aljamain Sterling, who were just born with 7% and get down to four, you know, 5%, but he's the exception. Actually, no, it's it's interesting you you bring out the single digit percent. Bill, you guys have a DEX in your lab, right? Right. Yeah. No, we I we have access to a DEX. I don't typically use it. I actually prefer for physique athletes or the, for the type of research I do, I prefer ultrasound 
because then we're measuring the actual thickness mm -hmm. of the body fat, whereas DEXA just estimates that. Um, we do. We recently have uh, have a bod pod in our lab, so if that that would be the closest thing to a DEXA that I have in terms of a, a two compartment model. Yeah, what's what's interesting, Tony? I don't know if you've looked at some of the data we've compiled on the DEXA. Yeah, we uh, no we singles. Have we have we have never measured anyone in single digits ever and we're talking Dex is hot dex is higher than when you compare Every it against if, my whole career whatever you are if if you didn't do a dexa go ahead and add three or four percent right because that's what your dexa will show and it happens to me too i test myself actually i just got a, tested myself on a dexa last literally oh well almost a week ago and it's always a bit higher yeah oh yeah ours it's funny ours is almost exactly four percent higher than bod pod or the in body but when they come to you, Bill, and they say, well, I got Dexed and I'm 21% fat. Is that real? I mean, how do you respond to that? And they're like, well, when you skin folded me, I was 15%. So which is the real number, Bill? Tell us. <laughs> well, I'm, I've been around long enough where I handle that on the front end. So if I'm, <laughs> if I'm testing them, I educate them. If they're a bodybuilder and they and they start getting hyper, you know, all hyperventilated about their number, I'm like, it doesn't matter. You're judged on how you look. And here's, here's a story I tell. I can have, and a lot of my work's in females, I can have two females that are both 15% body fat and they are drastically different bodies. One female 15% looks ripped and another female looks like she has no business stepping on stage at 15%. Right. So that's something, and that's, in, that's very um, interesting. I think one of the things, and again, I'm not an anatomist, whatever, uh, I'm not somebody who studies contours or anatomy, but right. I think the tendinous insertions on people have a big ha, have a big influence in just how they carry their the, the look of their skeletal muscle and their appearance even of of body fat. At least that's that's what I think because I'm I'm shocked at how two different physiques at the same body fat. So that's how I handle it. One, I educate them on the front end. Two, if it's a, a an actual competitive bodybuilder, I, I just say it's more important what you see in the mirror, what other people see in the mirror, not the number. But I also appreciate a lot of the people that I work with there. They have a goal and I like objective goals. So we'll set a body fat percentage goal because it's a lot better than body weight. And again, I'll just educate them. You stick to one device, whatever that device is, that's the one we're going to use. And you, you do it fasted first thing in the morning after, after urinating and you try not to, you know, you don't exercise the day prior. So a lot of education on the front end. So I'm not having to deal with all of the, <laughs> the, the head exploding of what's going on here. Tony, all, all I know is in our body comp lab, it seems to depress people more than anyone else. And here's the thing, Bill. We can pre-educate them on that. And I almost say it almost doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> They're yeah. like, I'm never getting on that DEXA again because it's telling me a lie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's one thing. Again, my lab doesn't have a DEXA. We have one on our campus. So I'm not really running into that <laughs> too much. Um, our ultrasound. And again, I always just, just say, you know, just choose one and be consistent. And um our ultrasound is very consistent with our in body and very consistent with our skin folds. Um, I haven't had the bod pod. In fact, the, I've, I've been the only person in our bod pod so far. So I still have, a, there's still a learning curve to see where that's going to fall out with, with different types of people. So Bill, can I just ask the ultra you using the body metrics? Cause I've used that for many yep. years. Is that the ultrasound? Yeah. Yep. Very good unit because of portability. 
Um, I've brought it to Dubai with me with the fighters and, you know, I've brought it all over the world. It's essentially just looks like an ultrasound gun pretty much. Right. And then you put the gel on and then um, the software system is downloaded to the computer just to familiarize those who may not have used it before, but I, I like it too. And it seems to pick up on some visceral. Uh, it's very good. Uh, it appears to pick up on the sub Q and you can get the millimeters uh, and thickness in, in this, the skeletal muscle tissue too, if you really uh, master the technique. So I found it to be a good device. Yeah. And related to that, if, if you can get somebody who's willing to do this, here's the best thing you can ever tell somebody with, with body fat. Don't care about the body fat percentage number, even though everybody cares. And, mm -hmm. and I care as well, but just get, we're going to measure you at seven sites, whether that's skin fold or ultrasound. And in my lab, we do both. Once we get the seven sites of the ultrasound, we add all of them up. So we're testing the, you know, the amount of body fat they have on their back, their quad, their abs, their hips, their triceps, their chest. Uh, I think that's, oh, um, axilla. And that's going to total, let's say it's 80 today. When you come back in four weeks or eight weeks, we just want to look at the total because that's a truest measure. Right. Anytime you start saying body fat percentage, now you're 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 ceding a lot of control to these algorithms or to these regression yeah. equations that are based on other people with different densities of muscle, different uh, different densities of body fat, but the skin or the fat thickness just add them up. That is relative to you and you don't have to make, there's no adjustments. It is the truest measure of what's happening for you and your body fat. Right. Do you, find, do you find, Bill, there's any regional differences as people drop body fat that certain sites seem to drop more or is it, is it have you found it to be uniform? Um, I Generally speaking, females typically have, they'll carry more body fat than males. So there's, I'm sorry, in the lower body. So in their quad. So that's one typical aspect, but no, it's, um, it's, oh, as far as where it's lost. Yeah. Is it uniform I, throughout? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't, I would say it's not consistent from person to person. I think a lot of people struggle to lose it in their triceps or their abs or their legs. And I think that varies from person mm -hmm. to person. I would not, it is not uniform, at least not from person to person. Right. Yeah. The reason I ask is there is, I was about to say, there's this obscure publication. I want to say it's either JAP or American Journal of Physiology, where they found that you can <clears throat> spot reduce. Um, I, and I forget what part of the body it was, but it was basically a spot reduction paper. And, uh, I don't know if you've ever dealt with that or looked in the literature. It was just one of those things I read just by happenstance. It's not, it's not really a field I follow, but I was like, huh. You no, know, I, I think I know the study. I think it was in skin folds. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm aware of it. And I, I'm aware of another study, which kind of, you know, said, nah, no, you don't spot reduce. So I'm aware of two studies, one of them being the one you mentioned, but yeah, I, I found that study I and mean, it's old. It's an older study. Yep. I only came across it probably within the last five years. And I'm like, huh. I, I, mean, I mean, is it is it impossible in the realm of physiology that you can't selectively reduce fat? Is that is it totally impossible? I mean, from a just using my logic, I, I would think it makes sense. I'm if I'm doing leg extensions a lot and I'm burning calories in there, why wouldn't the body fat leave there? So at least 
intuitively it makes sense. I've been under the impression that it's likely it is a little bit more random of where mm-hmm. we pull the body fat from. Right. Um, and I'm just going to say this related. I remember being on a flight somewhere and I looked at the the magazine on the seat in front of me and I saw this ad for cool sculpting. Are you familiar with cool? Yes, yes. yes. cool sculpting. Yes. And I like, this is a joke. I just remember like, Pfft. and then I looked, I was like, I'm going to look at, you know, I'm going to look at PubMed on this. It's legit. Cool scoping actually reduces body fat. I'm like, this is like the one device that I've ever found that actually works. Now, I have looked into it even more. The multi, There's some famous model who, who sued the company. Um, and the body fat is not uh, it's not uniform. So there's that term again. So I'm what's not, the mechanism? Explain the mechanism of action for it. Uh, so cool sculpting is basically freezing the fat cells to death. And my first thought was, well, how does that work? Doesn't that, what about, wouldn't that give you frostbite on the skin because your subcutaneous fat is underneath the skin? And the best answer that I was able to find is it is, it's very cold, but the skin is more impervious to that cold than the fat cells. Mm, so interesting. cold sculpting will kill and reduce subcutaneous body fat. It works. There's, there's, you don't have to take my word for it. There's published literature on this. I just have also heard, and again, this is not in the research literature. This is just being aware of the litigation. The, it is not uniform. And in some cases it actually can, can disfigure at least in this one lawsuit. And again, I'm, I don't want to, I don't want to get sued by uh, coal sculpting, but it, it's, I, it's not something I don't know enough about it to say, hey, let's, you know, this is something you recommend. I was I'm the only reason I bring this up is because I was shocked that something that looks like a joke actually had science behind it and multiple, like there was multiple studies. Well, wouldn't it, I mean, in a way that's similar, well, I was about to say similar mechanism, but like liposuction, you're physically removing adipose tissue. Um, and I haven't followed that literature I- either, but I'm wondering maybe if you have and what happens to those spots, if you suck fat out of your abdomen, is there some compensatory response where you refill it or is fat produced somewhere else, i.e. adipose tissue? I don't know. I don't know, <laughs> Tony, if you've ever looked at that, but there's a lot of people getting liposuction. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm just going to say this. Um, you know, there's a capacity, right, on each adipose cell. I mean, there is a limit at some given point on how many triglycerides it can hold, right? I'm sure it holds other properties, but nevertheless, so hyperplasia is still quite common. I mean, the body is pretty good at storing fat. Some of the data I've shown, yeah. If you took, if you had a hundred fat cells in your thigh and you bring it down to 60 and there's no consistent behavioral change, somehow or another, you're going to get back to a hundred. Uh, I don't think we can rule out hyperplasia and adipose tissue, even at later ages. There are primary uh, phases through life in which it occurs exponentially, right? As a child, five years or various points in age. But I don't, I I think unfortunately, the capacity for hyperplasia is quite great. I don't think somebody weighs 700 pounds, we can argue has just maximized the existing fat cells that they have. Uh, There's probably some replication there because, you know, the the adipose tissue is so active too, right? It's 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 an endocrine gland. It responds to so many stimuli. So in short, some of the literature I've read, it, we can't put a cap on hyperplasia potential in adipose cells even later in life. And, and one other thing that brings me to Bill, just and Joey, potentially, anyway, potentially, if there was any, uh, uh, you know, truth to, 
So you say, let's say spot reduction. I'm wondering because adipose is, as we know, an endocrine gland that sends out adipokines, right? And uh, messages, it's paracrine and autocrine messages, localize cells. Adipose tissue does that. I'm wondering, there's myokine properties too. So if you had adipose tissue in a given area and the muscle is consistently more active in that area, is there any myokine or any type of messaging going on locally that could potentially, and it's probably minimal, but potentially reduce body fat in that said area? I have no idea. But if spot reduction was possible maybe that's a mechanism because i think my i think muscle cells correct me if i'm wrong bill are active endocrine from an endocrine perspective as active as adip uh, adipose tissue is well I, one thing about muscle cells clearly there is spot hypertrophy with skeletal. spot hypertrophy right right yeah. and spot and hyperplasia what's that and there's spot hyperplasia i mean there's well, plenty of animal data on that yeah, yeah, I'm just throwing out a, a potential mechanism. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's it, no, it's a fascinating area because obviously it's it's sort of a uh, you're getting exercise and sports science sort of marrying medicine and trying to figure out what happens at the cell level with some of these things. And let's let's sort of dial it back to what people do naturally. And this is a question you get a lot, I'm sure, Bill, in terms of someone will come up to you, not necessarily a physique athlete or an athlete, but they. They all want to lose fat, gain muscle. I want to lose fat, gain muscle. What should I do? Do you prioritize the advice for that saying, hey, pick one? Or do you treat it as losing fat and gaining muscle as one problem to solve? So his, historically, and then I'll, I'll, I'll get into my what I do. Historically, we thought that you could not do that. That's, that's what I remember being taught. You can't gain muscle and lose fat at the same time. Clearly, you can multiple studies report you lose body fat, you can gain lean tissue at the same time. Somebody coming to me with that goal, I do exactly what you said. If, if I said, if you want to do this in the best and, and, and most efficacious way, you choose your goal and you go all in on that goal and you don't shortchange it. Everybody wants to shortchange it. Well, I want to gain muscle. And then, then you find out they're dieting <laughs> or- <laughs> or vice versa. So yes, choose your goal, attack that goal. If you want to lose body fat, let's do the things that target body fat losses while doing everything we can to maintain the lean tissue that you have. And I would say my lab, uh, some people say I'm humble, but I'm not when it comes to this. We, we have done more work on helping people diet or doing research on people dieting and maintaining their lean tissue when dieting. I don't think anybody's done more research um, on lean people losing body fat th than my lab. Um, and partly because why would <laughs> the, the medical establishment says lean people don't need to lose body fat. Why would you do that? So I, I, I get that. And then the other side is, yeah, if, if, if you want to, if you're telling me you want to gain muscle, do everything you can to gain muscle. And in either of those scenarios, I, my, my what, what I say is, you, we have to be comfortable with a little bit of body fat gain if you're going to try to build muscle. If you're going to try to lose fat, we at least have to entertain the idea that maybe you won't maximize the amount of muscle you could be gaining during this period of time. But at the end of the day, you're going to make greater progress in that direction. And then once we get to a point that we would agree on, this is if I'm working with a client, now let's say, okay, now let's go, let's change the goal and go all in on that while we're protecting the progress that we've made on our first choice. 
Now let's and, talk about well the more popular one, particularly amongst women. And I don't know what it is with women you've worked with, but it's almost always lose fat. I want to lose oh. fat. I want to lose fat. It's I mean there is the unusual female who says I want to gain muscle too, but most are like I just want to lose fat. I just want to lose weight. Um, do you? try to talk them out of the potential of losing lean mass, even though they say, I really don't care if I lose lean mass, I want to lose fat and weigh less and look thinner. Um, or you're like, you know what? Okay. If you lose lean mass, that's fine. It's, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's nothing, uh, you know, there's no sacrifice on my part. So what, what do you do? What advice do you give for that individual? Yes. Generally if people are coming to me, they know what I do. So they're, they they would know that I wouldn't be that that would probably be a little bit feisty <laughs> if, if they said I don't care if I lose lean mass. There's a lot of harms with losing lean mass, performance outcomes, future risk for sarcopenia, and we can right. get into hyperphagia where you're uh, where you're actually going to have fat overshoot, where you gain more body fat after a diet has been over for a few weeks than what you had before you started the diet, and the people that look into that believe that's a lean tissue reduction problem not a body fat loss mm -hmm. problem so there there's all of that interestingly if you look at all of the case study literature in females and there's about eight of these um physique female physique athletes competitors compared to the male bodybuilding case study literature females really don't lose lean tissue in fact oh, interesting. my lab is <laughs> yes yeah, it's, it's yeah it's, it's in the case studies and I'll say, in fact, uh, we just submitted a study where we're going to have the first female in this literature where we actually lost lean tissue. <laughs> After I just went on and told you how great my lab is at maintaining <laughs> lean tissue, we're going to have the first case study where our where our female um, our female subject in her preparation. Now she won her show. She won. She she did awesome. This was her first show. She so for her goals, she won. Um, but why did she lose lean tissue? We think. Uh, and again, this is just theoretical, very, very high um, fasting cortisol levels. And this was all taken in the morning and a pretty, pretty big drop in testosterone. Now, again, females don't have a lot of testosterone, mm -hmm. but, you know, as a scientist, you have to propose something mm -hmm. if you have an observation. So we think this could have been hormonal that all of the other case studies didn't the ones that measured these, these hormones did not observe. So they and, had, and clearly she was training hard and eating a lot of protein. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, probably a little bit more than a gram per pound. Yeah. All of the, all of the things. And again, how do you protect muscle? It's, it's pretty simple. You resistance train and yep. you eat, you, you, in, you have an optimal protein intake. What? 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kg. So that part's relatively simple. We, we don't have to we don't have to reinvent the wheel of that knowledge. That's how you you do everything you can to maintain your muscle. And again, if you want to get if you want to get sweet, okay, creatine will probably help. Yeah. Um, getting enough sleep will probably help. Trying to keep stress levels uh, as low as possible will probably help. But yeah, so th for the female who says this, I I, I just point to. We, I'll give, I'll show you data where if you do lose a lot of lean tissue, you have just set yourself up for future fat loss success. You've made your, you made it a lot harder on yourself to maintain mm -hmm. this, and you're going to be more hungry when the diet's over, and that's going right. to cause you to eat more food, and you're going to gain more body fat back. Um, before I, um, before I 
got into academia right around that time. I used to work at a, at a uh, country club and I would train rich people and I would work with people who would go on cruises and some of these, and again, these were all females that I worked on. So they would want to get very lean for their cruise. And I, I remember when they came back, some were almost unrecognizable. It, it was, it was, um, it was amazing how much weight a human body can put on. Now, again, doing oh, unrecognizable, they gained weight on the cruise. Yeah. They went up. Yes. Oh, yeah, wow. so they worked with me. And again, I didn't, I was not a scientist at the time. So I I I probably didn't serve them as well as what I could have. But the, the reality is we didn't have a lot of this research then. Um, this was, I'm just trying to think, Joey. This was right around the time you were at Delaware. So that that time frame, because I remember reaching out to you and I was oh. at working, working at in that, you know, as a trainer at that time. But I saw it firsthand women wow. that wanted to be very aggressive with their diet, met their goal, go on a cruise. And then those two things that are really working against them. One is unlimited access to food and two uh, experiencing what I believe is a, tr a true hyperphagic right. response. And hyperphagia is defined as an uncontrollable desire to eat or an insatiable desire to eat. So you put those two things together I am ravenously hungry and I have as much food as I could possibly want on this cruise. And just, yeah, it's, I'll, I'll never forget that. And maybe that that's probably had an impact on just what I want to contribute to this, to, right. to the, you know, to the space. Like, well, let's, how can we prevent this? And I think you prevent this by protecting lean tissue when you're dieting. And what does that right. mean? That means don't embrace crash dieting for long periods of time. Take a controlled, sustainable approach that may take a little bit longer, but one that's that 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 you can maintain for periods of time. So, Bill, just one quick question, yeah, and which is completely related to this. What what are your thoughts on why the um, female athlete may be preserving just a little bit more lean tissue? Is it because the male may have a greater reserve and tendency to use it in caloric deprivation or what, what might be a, a, a reason for that? Do we know? I, I don't think we know, but okay. what, uh, a couple thoughts. One is exactly what you said. They just have less absolute lean tissue to okay. lose. So they're not using it as an energy source quite like the way that a male would. Um, the other thing is males at, um, in bodybuilding males get a lot leaner than a oh, good point. competitive competing female. Right, right. Competing female may get to 10%. We'll call it 20 on a DEXA. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ever tell her that. <laughs> hey, that's right. Uh, so there's that. They're, the males are getting a little bit more. Makes sense. And females have a higher essential body fat. And then if you want to go the hormone route, the males have significant drops in testosterone when they get their calories very low and females, right. they don't, their, their testosterone's low to begin with. So it's not like they're having a large drop. So those would be the great the points. Three, yeah. The three mechanisms that I would say, Hey, it, it I would hypothesize it's one. Right. Three. Bill, a question I often get um, when I teach my sports nutrition course, and we talk about diets is the rate of weight loss. Um, how quickly is it? I haven't looked at this literature in a while, but does it matter how quickly you lose? I guess let's talk about weight since it's easier to measure weight. How quickly you lose weight and maintain the weight loss? Is it, can you lose weight quickly, let's say in four weeks versus eight to 12 weeks? 
and maintain it just as easily as the slower rate of weight loss. What's the literature say on that? So I'm, I am knee deep in this stuff. Literally, uh, we're going to submit a study on this in the next couple of weeks. So we've done research on this. I'm speaking on this in October and this is consuming me. And what I've learned from our own labs research is that I've had a change of mind. So let, let me tell you where I've had a change of mind. Wait, 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 before you start, I want to hear what they do in the fight world. And I want to see if it matches what you're coming up with. So in the fight world, how do they deal with rates of weight loss and making weight, Tony? How does that work in terms of, you know, if you have X number of weeks, I mean, obviously if you have, if someone says, Hey, you got to fight in one week, well, then you don't have a choice, but let's say you have a typical training camp of two to three months and let's compare it to what, what builds. Okay. So if it's done correctly, here's what you need. You need to know the scale weight. You need to know their body fat percentage, obviously. And you probably hopefully will know what body fat percentage they usually fought at before. The reason for that is you can make a, you know, a linear weight loss projection, right? Hey, let's take off this much weight. That'll get, you know, you're 210 right now. If we lose it, you're, you can lose 6% body fat. That will be a 10%, 10 pound contribution to the scale. You're probably going to lose about two to 2.5 pounds, maybe minimum of lean mass. And let's look at your daily water turnover so we can project how much water you can lose without any effort, by the way. So what that does is we got body fat, how much can we lose? What would be an estimated lean tissue loss to make it to the scale? And then monitor water turnover the whole camp. If they lose six or seven pounds easily, you know they're going to lose six or seven pounds easily 24 hours before and that you could probably push it further. So really with us, Joey, it's, it's a linear projection. Now, the rate is real simple. Am I starting with somebody who's 22% over the scale weight? Or are they 12% over the scale weight? There's the, okay, cool. And there's the, uh-oh. And that's the, 20, that's the 22% over the scale where we're going to have to lose 3% one week. You know, it's crazy. but So it's really contingent upon when you start and what the early numbers are. But that's what you're looking for. How far are they? What's the fat contribution in a linear uh, decline in weight? What is their water turnover? How, what's that contribution? A projected, you can't be perfect, amount of lean mass. And then all, the, all of a sudden we could say, wow, you're 210. Well, I know we can get you to 190 easy, even though you got to be 185. And that's how we do it. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, let's, uh, I want to hear what the literature and what you're doing, uh, you know, how, how, how you're viewing this, because you said you changed your mind on this. Yeah, I changed my mind based on our data. And then surprisingly, once I, once I noticed our data. Well, there's other studies that also have said this that I didn't previously mm. either appreciate when I read them or just didn't know of their existence. Um, and the same thing happened, Joey, with your high protein study. You were, I think you were the first study to say, hey, you can eat all this extra protein and people That's weren't right. gaining body fat. And I'm like, oh, that doesn't make sense. And then we did a study and saw the same thing, right. not to the magnitude of what your lab did. So it is funny when your mind opens up to something, other things... <laughs> You start seeing other evidence. And that's why I bring up the spot reduction thing, because I know everyone, and we'll get to the, the main topic, but everyone's like, no, it doesn't work. No, it does work. It's, and I'm thinking, I don't know, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, I that's why I proposed my wacky, time. that's right. why my wacky theory came up. <laughs> yeah. so, All right. So two years ago, Bill would say, you avoid rapid fat loss crash dieting at all costs. Mm -hmm. And the reasons you do this are what I talked about earlier. You lose lean tissue. That causes a, a, a massive increase in hunger when your diet is over. 
because of hyperphagia. And again, I can point to several studies. One of the main ones is the Minnesota starvation experiment. That's a textbook of hyperphagia, a hyperphagic response to wait, wait, Bill. No, that's a great study. Explain to the audience just real quickly what they did there. Cause it's a, it's a, well, it's an experiment that'll never be repeated. So <laughs> that's right. Yeah, explain what happened in that study. Yeah. And I, I guess I would say it wasn't a rapid fat loss study. It was an extreme uh, weight loss mm -hmm. study. So they took conscientious objectors that did not want to fight in, I think it was World War II. And they put, they said, okay, you don't have to go fight. We're going to, we're going to make you live in the University of Minnesota for about half a year. And the reason why researchers were studying this, it was a, literally a starvation study, is because post-World War II Europe, people were literally dying of starvation. It was just like what we did here with COVID. Everybody's studying COVID because it was relevant. Back at that time, people were studying starvation because there was a disrupted food supply. And, and literally, and sadly, people were dying because they couldn't eat. So in this study, um, six, 24 weeks of about a 60 to 80 percent reduction in calories, and they maintain that lost. I mean, the, there's pictures. Just, you yeah. can Google um, these, these people look almost dead, but they're still alive. Just, just bones, skin and bones. Um, there's one story of a person who thinks they cut their finger off because they were hungry. I think it was their, their, I think it was their thumb. Um, so the, again, people just yeah. literally losing their minds because they were so hungry. Then after the study, they gave them unlimited access to food. Like, okay, this, the, the starvation part of this is over. And during that period, they gained massive amounts of weight back, and they also experienced what researchers believe. Now, they didn't measure hyperphagia, but the, the post-analysis of, of, of the study would suggest they just had an uncontrollable desire to eat. Actually, that's not true. They, I think it was a four-week period. They controlled their food intake, and they, they slowly gained back weight. Then when they said, you can do whatever you want, that's when the hyperphagia fit and they gain back all of their body fat plus a, a lot more. And they kept gaining body weight, body fat, kept gaining more and more and more until the point where they gain back all of their lean tissue. Lean tissue right. lost. Yes. Yep. So that's, that's, that was the first study where researchers said, Hey, this, this, this post diet weight gain might not be about fat, which is called the lipostatic theory. It may be more about lean tissue or your muscle mass. And again, a couple of studies since that time have been have, have reported this. So rapid fat loss, what's changed in my mind? Avoided at all costs is what I used to say. And I'm still mostly there. Most people mm -hmm. shouldn't embrace a crash dieting approach. Um, and that's one study that I would point to of just being having an extreme approach. However, um, my lab did a study in lean people doing a 40, nearly a 40% caloric reduction for two weeks. Wow, that is hard. That's big. A lot, people, a lot of people realize that's exceedingly difficult for lean people. That is right. Oh, yeah, and for two weeks. Now, uh, this was also a pilot study. So one group reduced their calories by 50% in the first week and then 25% in the second week. So it averaged 37 and a half percent. The other group just did 37 and a half percent both weeks. That's why I say approximately 40 percent. 
what we found after this was, and by the way, they were, they did everything that you should do when you're dieting. They continued their resistance training. So they, we didn't change their resistance training. We observed it. So we, we, we were able to validate, yes, you continue to resistance train. And the other thing we did was we made sure that they were eating one gram per pound of protein, uh, one gram of protein per pound per of pound. Body. Yeah. 2.2 grams per kg which here's something I didn't think of ahead of time. Some of our smaller females, they were eating all protein because they didn't have enough body weight to- So no carbs. Right. For some of them. Okay. Uh, some of our larger male subjects, they could eat, you know, they I mean, still low carbs because it was such a drastic diet. But um, I, what I learned though was, and again, I didn't anticipate this. If you're a small person and you're, and you're, you're basing your protein on your weight, that may be all of your calories. So big people have a big advantage, essentially, when you, when you, um, when you're on, when you're trying to lose body weight. So what we found, and this is key. There's two steps to this. First analysis, they lost about a third of their body weight from fat-free mass, a two-compartment model. So a two-compartment model, you have fat, and then you have everything else. And they lost more, more lean tissue than what we would have liked. The obese literature gives us a standard. When you lose body weight, what we see with, in, in individuals with obesity, 25% usually comes from lean body mass or fat-free <laughs> mass. 75% comes from fat mass. So that's the standard that we apply. Um, if you're losing more of that or less than that, that gives you, hey, we're doing something right or something wrong. Now, again, in my lab, we've we've published about four studies where all the weight comes from body fat, but not this one. To, uh, a third, so it's a little bit more coming from lean body mass. And then what we did, that was the first analysis. That was without any body water adjustment. We then said, okay, we, well, we have an in-body. What happened to their body water? And what we realized, almost all of the lean tissue that they lost or fat-free body mass was body water. So they really did maintain their lean tissue, almost all of it, when you when you factored total body water. Right. And then of course, as, as we're working on the, you know, the discussion of this, I realized other people have said, hey, if you're going to do anything short term with a diet, you have to measure body water because otherwise your estimations are going to be way off. So a lot having that knowledge then if it makes you interpret some of these historic rapid fat loss studies a little differently because right. none of them measure body water changes. Right. And right, right. if they had what we used to say, hey, this is all muscle mass or lean tissue. Well, that's probably probably wasn't the case. Now, second study. And this one's this one's a crazy study. I'm actually writing about this in my research review for next month. They took about 15 males with obesity and they put them on a four day extreme diet. So the epitome of a rapid fat loss diet. Four they days, had, wow. Yeah, they had them eat 320 calories total for four straight days. And get this, they had them exercise nearly nine hours per day, 45 minutes oh, of arm crank exercise and eight hours of walking on a treadmill. I couldn't even do that. <laughs> I, I was, we were just in Vegas for the NSCA and I was walking for two hours and I was dish, like, now again, it was 110 degrees. Right. I kept thinking, I'm like, how in the world did these, yeah, I, I agree. It was insane. Now these men were obese, so they probably had a high motivation to, to do this. Right. Listen to what they did um, again. And this was only a 2015 study. I would think it would be hard to get this study passed today. Um, they also measured body water 
almost all of the body fat coming from body fat stores. They measured them one month later to see could they maintain this and a year later to make sure that this hyperphagia, to make sure this wasn't short term, they maintained their fat loss. Now, some of it came back after a year, but within a month, still no, no real change after going back to normal eating. So they were able to maintain this. So what has this taught me? It's taught me that a rapid fat loss strategy is appropriate or may be appropriate as long as it is very short. Got it. 14 days from my lab, four days in these people. So right. I like to say it like this. You get in and you get out. You get out before you're doing any damage to your lean tissue. And now we can extrapolate again. We didn't measure performance. They didn't measure performance. But for athletes, obviously performance rules, Be very, I would say, be very careful. Don't put yourself in a situation where you would need to do this. But if you do, get in and get out before your body has had a chance to adapt to this right. Makes sense. extreme level of calories. Bill, do you realize this is the news? Everyone who wants here who wants to get in shape for a wedding, get in shape for a family reunion, a grad, you know, a class reunion, that in a sense, they kind of knew it all along, maybe by trial and error. But, but I guess the part that they probably didn't think about was the hyperphagia after you lose weight, you're like, oh my God, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. I mean, so yes. to avoid no, that part, you're saying as long as the weight loss phase is short or the diet phase is short, you can avoid most of that hyperphagia? I, I think there's a high, a high likelihood that you can. So the longer these things go, and basing on prior research, like the Minnesota starvation trial experiment is one, the longer you go, you're going to lose lean tissue. But right. it looks like, you can be very aggressive for a very short period of time and maintain lean tissue. And if you maintain lean tissue, then you're preventing against this hyperphagic right. response. Well, and maybe, and here's the question, maybe yeah. performance if you're an athlete. I don't right. know. We didn't do that. Um, and I think about this, as, which really drives me. If I'm working with somebody who wants to go on a diet, and let's just say that they're not even, they're not an athlete. They're just somebody with, with, with obesity. When are they most motivated to diet? When they start or after dieting for five weeks or, or four months? No, obviously, everybody gets sick of dieting after a while. I know I do. So to me, it almost makes sense. If you are highly motivated to diet, let me leverage your motivation for the first week or two. And let's hammer you with a low calorie diet and doing all the things we know. Have, make sure you're exercise. Make sure that you are eating a high protein diet leverage your motivation and then get out of that aggressive. Right. And that has two things. And I, again, we're working right now, what study we're going to do next year. Um, I, I, I explain a story like this. Let's say you reduce somebody's calories by 20%. So I'll use myself. If you reduce my calories by 20%, I'm thinking I'm hungry and I'm, I'm a little irritable and I don't like not eating all this food. So, but if you had me reduce my calories the first week by 50%. I'd be pissed. I would be too. But now in week two, you now I'm going to, I'm still now week two, I go to 20%. Guess right, what so, that is? No, so that's good psychologically, yeah. right? I get all these extra calories. Yeah, know. yeah. And from a oh, performance really. perspective, Bill, that would be better because in terms of talking about, and even in that short window, the, the dehydration of the lean tissue would impair performance possibly, right? 
because we were saying earlier that we're losing water from that lean tissue yeah. with, yeah. So, so you, you'd have that one week to pull some of that weight off and then maybe potentially get some of that water back, which is probably when the caloric deprivation is there by 50% part glycogen depletion too. Anyway, might that be the case or why oh, the yeah. lean tissue water is going down? That's part of it. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. If the yeah. calories are that low, you're, you're guaranteed to lose glycogen. And then right. on top of right. it, if they're training. Now you're, you're, you're getting you're depleting. Down. Like, yeah, right. Exactly. Logically low as you can get. And again, assuming that they're only eating a couple hundred calories, but I, I like this from a multitude of perspectives, leveraging the motivation, getting in and getting I like that. Yeah. And also the, the, I guess I'll, I'll still call it a hypothesis, um, but you're, you're, you're avoiding this damage that would occur if you were to extend this for several weeks at a time. And nobody's, the reality is people are just going to quit. Then nobody's going to eat 300 calories a day for more than a few days. <laughs> That's insane. Uh, Bill, we're, we're running out of time. So I want to get to this one last subject. I want you to explain the, the concept or difference between flexible versus rigid dieting. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite topics. Rigid dieting is essentially what I would call old school bodybuilders would do. You have to eat asparagus and rice and fish. Chicken breast. Chicken breast. Yep. Yeah. Another big one. And for all of your meals. So let's just say oatmeal, asparagus, rice, broccoli, fish, chicken breast. There's your meals. That's a rigid diet. You have to eat all of them for every single meal for the length of your diet. That's That would be the definition oh. of a rigid diet. A flexible diet would suggest it doesn't matter what you eat. It matters what your total calories are. So if you would rather have a bowl of Cheerios rather than your broccoli or your oatmeal, you can exchange that. It's the same number of carbs, same number of calories. You don't like chicken breasts. You prefer lean steak, lean beef, make that substitution. Right. So flexible dieting um, basically opens up the world of food choices with an acknowledgement that you, you'll gain weight if you overeat on these foods and you'll lose weight if you, if you eat lower than your maintenance calories. And, and I would just say my, my philosophy is a protein anchored, flexible dieting approach. Now, this is assuming, okay, you mentioned protein, but also this is calorie equated, right? So energy intake. So whether it's, if you're eating Cheerios, you're getting protein somewhere else, obviously. Yes. Yep. And if you yeah. found a difference, I mean, do people naturally gravitate to one towards the other? Because I know people who are very type A who like to do the exact same thing every day and it works for them. Whereas others are like, I ain't eating no freaking chicken breast without skin and broccoli again. I, I mean, I'm going to throw up if I see another dish of that. Have you found that? Yeah, well, what I've noticed is for bodybuilders that embrace a flexible dieting approach, when they get close to their show date and their calories are very low, there's no room for food substitution. Mm -hmm. They're eat, they are basically doing a rigid diet, right? Because there's only so many foods that will fit into this very low calorie, pretty high protein approach. But for normal people dieting, it's a it's a life changer because you can actually choose the foods you like, and when you do that, guess what you're going to do? You're going to stick to your diet longer. Yeah. Now, a lot of people can't live with this. They're, they don't believe it. I didn't believe it at first. I first heard of this. I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense. So we did a study on it. We published it in JISSN, I think in 2018. So 
we've shown this. It really calories matter. Mm -hmm, the food choices don't. Now there is a caveat. Protein messes all of that up. Right. Um, I always tell people, good luck trying to gain body fat with with overeating on protein. I, right. I, I exactly. I don't even know if you if it can be done. Um, in fact, there are several studies that have shown if as long as you're resistance training and you increase your calories from protein only, you do not gain body fat. Yeah. Um, Joey, one, one of those few studies is yours. Uh, 800 extra calories per day for yeah, eight weeks. <laughs> and you know what's interesting, Bill? I don't know if you've run into this with your classes. It's, it's a hard concept for students to grasp that if they just had two or three extra protein shakes a day, that even though it's an extra whatever, 200 calories, that they're not going to gain body fat from it because – to them, well, it's just a calorie. I mean, it should be deposited, right? But I'm like, no, protein, it's just, it's, I always say this, if we were cattle and we were being consumed by aliens, if they want to fatten us up and ain't through protein, they're going to give us Cheerios and fruit. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, there's, I don't know if you ever heard of the protein leverage theory. Not, we don't have time to get into it, but it's, there's a whole philosophy on that your body will be hungry, and it will continue to want to consume calories until you meet a minimum daily protein intake threshold. Mm -hmm. The protein leverage theory, and the, the, the researchers that postulated this somewhere in Europe, but it makes sense. Yeah. Uh, in, in one study where they over, or where they gave, um, this was a metabolic ward study, uh, ultra processed food diet versus a whole food diet. The ultra processed food diet, they kept, they, they overate by 500 calories, gained significant amounts of body weight. What did they overeat on? Carbs and fat. They did right. not choose, naturally choose higher protein mm -hmm. foods. So there's, to me, and I, I, I have to do more reading on this, but that pro is called the protein leverage theory. It's pretty fascinating about the importance of protein for controlling appetite and improving body composition. Tony, you have any final words for Bill before? We've got no, just um, just on the protein side. I mean, gosh, right? We know it's more of cost. It costs more to digest it. Uh, it's pretty costly process to convert it to glucose. I mean, so there's a lot of cost to it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, turning an amino acid uh, going uphill through gluconeogenesis is pretty ATP expensive and so forth. But so anyway, uh, no, this fascinating. I think um, the, a great message, Bill, uh, of which one I've not embraced and certainly will now is, OK, we can get that done for a week. We can get it done for two weeks, you know, maybe take a little bit of and a lot of that weight off off within that time period, but don't extend it out. I think the unfortunate thing is most people need way more than two weeks to, <laughs> to get yeah, where but, they'd like to be for that wedding, but but yes. very important and very valuable. Thanks. Yeah. You get in, get out, and then hit it again, maybe in yeah. another four weeks. Like it's right. uh, there, there could be a system to this. Bill, uh, uh, we have one minute left. Tell tell the audience where they can find information on you on social media. If you're giving any talks, uh, you know, in, in 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 the near future, where can people find more info on what you do? Uh, best place is Instagram. My handle is Bill Campbell PhD. Uh, I also have a, a website, BillCampbellPhD.com. I sell a research review that's solely focused on losing body fat, gaining muscle mass. So everything we talked about here. 
Uh, so you can find that on my website. Or, and and if you forget all this, just go to Instagram and DM me. I I, I get back to everybody. And, I answer and, every question. Yeah. And may I say your Instagram page is great, everyone. Please go. Very informative and educational. There, there's no nonsense on this. You walk away learning something you didn't before. You do a great job now. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I know, Tony, you're taking those quizzes. I know it. I do. I take every quiz. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, shit, I don't know if I know the answer to this one. <laughs> Well, Bill, hey, thank you so much. Uh, and I'm going to tell people if they want to die for four days, they can die for four days. I will just quote you and say it was okay. So well, there's, I was a researcher. There's a lot of nuance to that that I might need to be <laughs> But thanks. Hey, it's been, uh, it's been a very informative show. And Bill will have this uploaded uh, probably by tomorrow. And I will make sure you get tagged on it. So thanks a lot. Awesome. Thanks, Bill. Thanks. Enjoy it. Bye.